You're listening to the Living Word Church Podcast. To learn more about Living Word Church and our service times, visit us online at livingwordli.org. Today's message comes from our women's ministry director, Kelly Jansen. I have three kids. All my kids are great. All my kids are funny. But my youngest son, Landon, he's a really funny kid. And he's also very inquisitive. He loves to ask questions. Ever since the time that he could talk, he began to ask questions. And I love this about him. And, and you know, right now he asks two kinds of questions all the time. And the first one is a would-you-rather question. And I am not going to give you an example of Landon's would-you-rather questions. Because as a 14-year-old boy, they are often gross. <laughs> The second kind of question he loves to ask is, what's your favorite? And he does this all the time. He follows me through the house. He says, what's your favorite song from the 80s? Because he's obsessed with the 80s. What's your favorite Seinfeld episode? What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite kind of chicken wing? Because Landon loves chicken wings. There was one time where he was across the hallway in his bed, and I, we could tell he was awake, and I said, Landon, go to sleep. And he said, I can't. I'm thinking about chicken wings. But Landon loves to ask Lots of questions. When he was little, he didn't really ask those kinds of questions, but he did ask a lot of uh, what would happen if questions. Now, these questions uh, were both funny and kind of shocking. <laughs> there was one time that I was driving in the car, and he's behind me, and he sees a house. He goes, Mom, look at that house. And I was like, a nice house. What would happen if I jumped off that house? <laughs> Landon, <laughs> don't jump off any houses. Uh, our son, Cade, and Landon used to share a room when they were little, and Cade was telling us a story the other day. Is there's one night Cade was trying to fall asleep, and Landon's like, Cade, hey, Cade, what would happen if I woke up in a bowl of Diolini? <laughs> and Cade goes, Landon, go to sleep. And now I finally understand why Landon hid Parmesan cheese in his room for a year. He really did this. That was interesting when we had found that. It was because just in case, <laughs> he woke up in the bowl of Diolini. There's one what would happen if question that I'll never forget. Landon was about four years old, and, and we were going into hot bagels, the best bagel place around. And I'm about to open the door, and he grabs my hand, and he pulls me to stop, and he says, Mom, wait. And I said, what's up, bud? And he goes, if I go into that store with no pants on, would the police come and take me to juvie? <laughs> and I looked back at my four-year-old, and I said, one, why would you not have pants on? Two, how do you know what juvie is? <laughs> a lot of questions have come our way from Landon, but all of us, we are all given questions, lots of questions on a daily basis. Would you help me finish this phrase? There are no blank questions. What would you say? Stupid questions. So whether you agree with that statement or not, I think the thing that we can all agree in is that questions range in importance. Some questions are, you know, they're of little importance, and some are of much weightier importance. You know, some of the little questions, what are you going to have for lunch after church today? That's a little question, but for some reason, it's so hard to answer. I can't tell you how much time Doug and I spend going, I don't know, what do you want? I don't know, what do you want? But then there are questions that have much more of an impact on our lives, on our families, on our futures. With all the questions that we can be asked the most important question that you and I will ever answer is who is Jesus? In the Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, we have an account of Jesus asking this question to his disciples. He said, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered and said, some say you're John the Baptist, 
Some say you're Elijah. Some say you are a prophet. And then Jesus looked at them and said, and who do you say that I am? And Peter answered in a stunningly accurate response, stunningly because a lot of times the things that came out of Peter's mouth were not always in line with truth. But he said, you are the Christ. He was saying, you are the Messiah. You are the one that has come to save us. Right answer. The world has a lot of opinions of who they think Jesus is. Some say he's a made-up fairy tale, a myth, a conspiracy. Some say, oh, no, no, there's some good things about Jesus. He was a good teacher. He said some good things. He was a good moral example. But there's only one right answer. And how you and I answer that question not only determines our eternity, but it determines how we walk through this life here and now. Today we are continuing this series in the book of Colossians, and last week Doug started off by encouraging us to wrestle in prayer for each other. And he said that part of wrestling in prayer for each other is praying this prayer for God's will to be known and done. And I have been praying that way all week. Now, I don't know about you, but there are certain situations where I don't always know how to pray. Do I pray this way or that way? And I can tell you there's been such a peace and there's been such a rest in praying along those lines. God, I don't know what your will is, but let it be known and let it be done in this situation. This morning, we're going to continue where Doug left off, and we're going to look at a portion of scripture that clearly answers that question, who is Jesus? You know, many commentators call this portion of scripture the most theologically profound portion of scripture about Jesus. And when I read that, and I was getting prepared for this message, I got on my knees, and I said, God, I am inadequate to be able to fully do these verses justice because they are so beautiful, because it shows how magnificent Jesus is, and I can only scratch the surface here today. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, but before we get to the verses, I just want to remind you that part of Paul's goal in writing these verses is to correct false doctrine. Because there was some false doctrine, false notions about Jesus that began to spread around this church. In most translations, there's a title over this portions of scripture, and the title is the preeminence of Christ. Another title over this is the supremacy of Christ. And in these verses, not only do we get a clear picture of Jesus, that in that picture we get incredible encouragement for our hearts. And it's been my prayer leading up to today that we would have eyes to see it and a heart to receive it. So who is Jesus? Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word image here is translated visible representation. You know, throughout the Bible, God the Father is referred to as the invisible God and the unseen God. But in Jesus, the invisible has become visible because Jesus is the mirror image of his Father. There's an ongoing debate in our house on who our daughter Bryn looks like. Doug thinks she looks exactly like him. 
and Doug is wrong. <laughs> and my phone agrees with me. <laughs> Not once but twice, I shared this at Deeper, my daughter has opened up my phone using Face ID. And I was in shock. And I did some research into this, and Apple says, if your child looks a lot like you, they may be able to open your phone. So parents, be careful <laughs> if your child looks like you. Not only has she been able to open my phone, but you know how you can organize your pictures according to albums and according to someone's face and, and give it a name? Well, if you look through my phone under Kelly, you will see Bryn <laughs> with the title Kelly underneath. Doug thinks the iPhone is deeply flawed, <laughs> and they need new software. But it's not just the phone. When Doug was still recovering from COVID, our daughter Bryn was outside. One of our neighbors was walking by, and he yells, hey, how's your husband? And she yelled back, he's good, <laughs> because she doesn't even bother to correct them. Recently, on a Sunday, I was sitting in the front, and I saw out of the corner of my eye two people come running and flying around the corner, and it was Grace and Hannah, two of our 22-6 leaders, and when they saw me, they stopped dead in their tracks, and they started to laugh, and they said, oh, we thought you were Bryn. I was like, oh, you're not as excited to see me? <laughs> Just that excited to see Bryn? Now, even though Bryn looks a lot like me, much to my husband's dismay, she doesn't look exactly like me. You know, there are differences, and I would say she's the better version of me in every single way, but Jesus is the perfect and the exact image of the Father. In John 14, Philip asks, says to Jesus, show us the Father. And he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So what does that mean, that Jesus is the perfect and exact image of God the Father? Listen to what Charles Hodge says. He says it better than me. It means that all divine names and titles are applied to him. He is called God, the mighty God, the great God, God over all, Jehovah, Lord, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. All divine attributes are described to him. He is declared to be omnipresent, omniscient, almighty, immutable, the same God today and forever. So who is Jesus? He's not a made-up fairy tale. He's not a myth. He's not just a moral teacher or even a prophet. He is God in the flesh. With all of the power, all of the glory, and all the fullness of deity, he's not less than God the Father or the Holy Spirit. He is co-equal. Why is this so important that you and I grasp onto this today? Like we said in the beginning, the purpose of this letter is to combat false teaching. And there are two elements that are pretty consistent with false teaching of, of you know, a kind of like a, a picture of Christianity, but not exactly. Something is missing. And one of those elements of false teaching is that it adds to what is necessary to salvation. And in essence, what they are saying is that the cross was not enough. It's, it's not sufficient. There's something that you and I must do. It's Jesus plus something in order to earn, earn access to God. Church, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is Jesus plus nothing. It is Jesus. The other thing that false teaching so often does is it takes away from the deity of Christ. One of the ways it does that is to elevate man, 
So if you hear a message and what is being said is all about us, something's off. Something is wrong. But the other thing that false teaching does is it diminishes Jesus. It diminishes his position. It diminishes his authority. And it diminishes his deity. Any teaching that does not teach Jesus as supreme is not the true gospel. Maybe some of you here are confused or stumble over the second part of that verse that says he is firstborn over all creation. What you have to understand is that firstborn is not a reference to Jesus being a created being. You see, in a minute, the next few verses, we're going to see that not only did Jesus exist before all things, but he created all things. And so if he created all things, he can't be part of his own creation. So what does firstborn mean? We don't want to just skip over it and say, I don't understand it. We want, we want to understand it. You know, another translation said he is firstborn over all creation. And maybe that is a better translation to help us understand. You see, by using the phrase firstborn, Paul is pointing to the supremacy of Christ. See, because when this was written, the firstborn held certain privileges, a certain rank, a certain status, a greater inheritance. And what Paul is pointing to is Jesus' rank and status and position over everything that he would create, that Jesus is supreme, that he is Lord over all. Let's go on. Verse 16, for by him and for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So who is Jesus? He is the designer and the builder of the universe. He's not just the designer and the builder. He is supreme over all of it. There is no ruler. There's no dominion. There's no authority that rivals the supremacy of Jesus. And when we hear that, we need to go back to Doug's message for a minute. We have to remember, you know, we can like take a portion of scripture and, and, and speak on that, but all of these verses go together. And we have to see that Paul is saying, the, the one who we wrestle in prayer with, the one that we go to, is the one who rules and reigns over it all. And we must know that. If we're going to go to God in faith, we must recognize and see that he is the one that rules and reigns over it all. He has not given his rule and reign over to anyone or anything else. He holds that place. Knowing this not only gives us a confidence as we pray, but this is really important. It gives us a comfort when the answer that we were wrestling for is not how we hoped when we persistently wrestle in prayer and the answer is no, first off, it's not because God didn't hear you and ignored you. And then two, it is not because God wasn't big enough, strong enough, or mighty enough to do what he, you were asking him to do. It wasn't because the enemy won. Jesus won. Because Jesus rules and reigns over it all when the answer is not what we have hoped, we can be real with our disappointment and how we feel and grieve. But at the very same time, at the end of the day, we could submit to his lordship. And we do that by saying, God, I don't understand. I'm disappointed. I feel hurt. 
but I want your will more than my own because you are Lord over all. You see what I can't see, so help me to trust you. Jesus has created all things. He is over all things. And there's another part of that verse that we could easily miss and just go on, and, and we can't because it's so important. Paul says all things were created for him. For him. Everything. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the animals, the, the plants, you and me, we were all created to point to his greatness. We were all created to point to the supremacy of Jesus. And that means the goal of all of it is not us, it's him. And here's where some people begin to struggle. Wait, it's not about me, it's all about him. That sounds egotistical. It's not. Not only would it be idolatry for the design to have not been all about Jesus, it would have been unloving. How is that possible? Because there is nothing in this life that is going to satisfy your heart like him. There is no relationship, no person, no recognition, no job, no success, no amount of money that will fill a deep void in your heart like seeing and knowing Jesus. So the fact that everything points to him is what makes it possible for you and I to have joy. For you and I to have real and unshakable peace. It is all for him. It all points to him. And yet we are the ones that reap the benefit of that. It's all for him. Let's go on. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And that in everything he might be preeminent. He is before all things, and in him, and in him alone, all things hold together. Every second of every moment of every day, the universe is held together by the power of Jesus' words. He keeps the planets from crashing into each other. He keeps the atoms from exploding. He keeps the laws of gravity sustained. He holds it all together. And here we see that the author of life is also the sustainer of life. And here's what I want you to know today, that it's not just the sun, the moon, the stars, and every molecule in the universe that he holds together. He holds you. He holds your life. He sustains your life. And I'm not just talking about the breath in your lungs and the beat of your heart, although that is true. I'm talking about when life is so overwhelming and so difficult and you feel like you're falling apart and you can't take another second, he holds you. He sustains you. When you feel like your faith is going to fail, he will hold you fast. In every up and down, in every twist of turn, he won't let you go. He has you. I have a medical condition um, that's called POTS, and a lot of people haven't heard about it. I was diagnosed six years ago after a, a big attack on my nervous system, and even then, a lot of doctors didn't know about it and understand it, and more people are understanding it now, but often, you know, Doug will tell me that you have asked about me or you're praying for me, and I can't tell you that encourages me, but a lot of times people say, so what happens? Like, what, what does that mean? What is POTS? 
And just to very quickly explain just a small part of it, a lot of times, especially if I'm standing too long, my blood pressure drops really, really low and my heart rate goes really, really high. And sometimes this makes me feel faint or I actually faint. But sometimes I don't feel faint. Sometimes I just feel overwhelmingly weak, especially in my legs. And I feel like my legs are going to give way. And unfortunately for me, this means that sometimes I have a hard time standing throughout the entire time of worship. And I love worship, so I don't like to have to sit down. But sometimes I do for like a minute or two just to bring my heart rate down, and then I'll, I'll get back up and hope for the best. <laughs> but there is a time that I will not sit no matter how I'm feeling, no matter how weak I'm feeling. And that is when Doug is by my side. You see, sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, you guys are so cute. You hold hands during worship. Oh, no, I'm holding on to him <laughs> for dear life. He's keeping me up. But in those moments when he is by my side and I feel weak and unstable, I reach for him and he holds firmly to me. And here is what I want you to understand is that even if I still feel weak, I am held up because he has me. You may feel really weak here this morning, weak to keep going, weak to face temptation, weak to keep standing in the face of all kinds of fears, anxieties, trials, and oppositions, but the designer, the creator, the sustainer of the universe is by your side, and his grip on you is strong, and he will not let you go. Even when you feel like you're sinking, in the waves, he won't let you go. Even when you feel like your grip on him is barely there, he doesn't let go of us. That is who Jesus is. The one who holds all things together, including you and me. Yes, our heartbeat and the breath in our lungs, but also our lives. Our lives in the face of difficulty, in the face of disappointment, in the face of uncertainty. He holds us. He will carry us, and he will be faithful until the end. Who is Jesus? So far we've seen he's Lord over all, designer and builder and sustainer of creation. We've seen the supremacy of Christ. All the power and the authority are his. All the worth is his. And it's not until we truly understand that and see Jesus for that will we treasure the cross. Will we truly treasure what he came to do for us? What did he come to do for us? Verse 19, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. At one time, all of us, all of us were separated from God, hostile and a slave to sin. That's who we were. But for all who put your trust in Christ, that is not who you are anymore. And it wasn't because there was anything that you and I can do in ourselves to change that. It was because the king of heaven, the creator of the universe, humbled himself, laid down his rights, 
left the comfort of heaven to come and rescue us. And he gave his life and he shed his blood. And if he wasn't all those things, if he wasn't supreme, if he wasn't preeminent, better than anything else, his death would not have meant much. But it has changed everything. And because he has given his life, we have been made holy, blameless, and above reproach. And I want to talk about that word blameless for a few minutes because a lot of us don't feel blameless. In fact, a lot of us carry around a heavy weight of guilt that feels crushing. You know, the word blameless here is translated one in whom no legitimate charge can be brought. And so the question is, who brings the charges against us? First, it's us. That's the first hand to go up. We, we do that to ourselves. We beat ourselves up with guilt and regret, even when we know that we have brought them to Jesus. But it's not just us. It's others in our lives. Maybe you're somebody who knows what it's like for someone else to constantly bring up our failures and, and sort of just throw them back in her face at, at just the right time, remind us of all the things we've done wrong, even if it was years ago, decades ago. So it's us, it's others, but then we also have an enemy. We have a very real enemy who is called the accuser, and he loves to accuse, especially when we're feeling vulnerable. For example, we're going through a tough time. We're going through difficulty. God feels far. Answers to prayer seem few. And we start to hear this whisper, you know why that's happening? That's happening because this in your life, that failure. And the enemy draws a line between our present circumstances and the things that we've done in the past. I say this often, we do not have a God who holds our failures over our heads ready for the right moment to pummel us with them. If you have put your trust in Christ, the charges against us, whether they're from us, others, or the enemy, have been rendered illegitimate. The charges are not illegitimate because they aren't true in that we haven't done those things. The charges are illegitimate because Jesus has carried them for us. In the next chapter, in Colossians 2, one of my favorite verses, when it talks about what Jesus has done for us, it says this, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. It's gone. It's finished. If you and I have brought it to him, he carried it for us. What an incredible savior we have. I was thinking about some of the ways that you and I try to deal with guilt. We distract ourselves, you know, not have a moment alone with our thoughts because if we do and it's too quiet, we will just begin to beat ourselves up with regret. We try to reason our way out of guilt. We, we blame shift. We, we say, yeah, maybe I did that, but that was because of this person in my life. Sometimes we do nothing, we just let that guilt eat away at us. And the truth is that we will not ever have freedom over shame and guilt by any other means than by looking to and resting in what Jesus has done for us. By resting in that our debt has been paid in full. 
And the reason it's been paid in full is because Jesus himself paid it all. Who is Jesus? He's the one who came for us. He's the one who reconciled us. He's the one who presents us holy and blameless. Are you seeing how magnificent Jesus is? Let's look at one last verse for today, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul is saying, this is who Jesus is. He is the one who is supreme over it all. Don't shift from this. Don't fall for false teaching that diminishes the deity of Jesus or adds to the cross. This is who Jesus is. Hold fast to that truth. And that is my encouragement today, that we would hold fast to the truth of who Jesus is, who we have seen in these verses. He is not a myth. He is not a made-up fairy tale. He is not just a good teacher or a moral example. He is Lord over all, creator of the universe, the one who holds us together when we would otherwise fall apart. He is the one who has reconciled us with the laying down of his life and the shedding of his blood. And now you and I stand blameless before God because of what he came to do for us. Wow. My brother and his family uh, live in Chicago. He's got four kids. He's a pastor there. And a couple of weeks ago, they came to visit, and, and I love when they visit, and we all get together with my other brother's family, and we, you know, our, our main place is we all go to grandma and papa's house, and, and we eat together, and we spend time together, and my, my parents cook some amazing meals for us, and, and these foods have actually begun to be called by their names, so they're so good that, that we have named them these things. The kids have done this, we have done this, and so, for example, my mom makes this pasta. It's the best pasta you ever had in your life. Um, I think maybe some people call it pasta carbonara. We call it grandma's pasta. <laughs> my, my dad makes these potatoes. They're like life-changing potatoes. We call them papa's potatoes. And then there's this other food that my dad makes that everybody loves and asks for, you know, when the, when the cousins are visiting, and that is papa's ribs. And papa's ribs are so good. And there was one night toward the end of the time that we were all together and we were having Papa's ribs and most of the kids are in the kitchen eating at the kids' table and most of the adults and some of the older kids were, were there with us. And the entire meal, I kept hearing this little voice from the kitchen making comments. My seven-year-old nephew, Cal, kept making comments and, and these comments were like, this is so amazing. Oh, this is so good. This is literally the best day of my life. <laughs> Uh, these are the best chicken wings I ever had. <laughs> His sister was like, they're not chicken wings. I was like, they're not chicken wings, cow. But he could not stop responding to and commenting on Papa's ribs. Why? Because something so good demands a response. And then on a much grander scale, the supremacy, the magnificence of Jesus demands a response from us, from our lives. You see, the question is not just who is Jesus. The question is how will we respond to who he is? And there are many ways that we can respond. But so that I don't keep you here all day, I'm going to give you two. And the first way that we respond is we give Jesus our all. 
You see, we have been loved with a love that is so amazing and so undeserving. And like that hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with someone who says, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not ready to give him all of me. When you see Jesus for who he is, that is not an option. You see, because Jesus will either be nothing or he will be everything to us. So my question is, does he have our all? Or has anything in this life taken the preeminence of his first place? Has a person, a goal, a job, a busyness, has any of those things taken that place? You know, we said in the beginning that that Jesus is the only one who can fully satisfy our hearts. But the truth is that when we make those things ultimate things, not only will they fail to satisfy us, they will leave us more empty, more disappointed, and more anxious because they were not designed to be our all. Jesus is our all. Before we move on to the next response, let me just say this, that there are some of you who feel like in order to fully follow Jesus, you have to have all your doubts settled first. You know, there's a part of you that believes and knows, but, but yet there's questions and there's doubts and there's confusions about certain things. And so you, you hold back and you won't give him your all. Let me just encourage you that God can handle your doubts. You don't have to wait until you have it all figured out. Begin to follow him with your all, all whole life and see him quiet your doubts with his love and with his truth. He will do it. Like Mark chapter 9, the man who said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. He will. So give him our all. The next way we respond is with our worship. You see, the supremacy of Christ means he is the only one worthy of all of our praise. Now, here's the truth that so often our worship is connected to the circumstances in our lives. When things are good, when it feels like God has answered prayer, it's so much easier to stand in worship. But when life is a struggle and when God feels distant or silent, we are more apt to sort of pull back our worship. But the incredible truth is that everything that we see in these verses that makes Jesus worthy of our praise has nothing to do with our circumstances. They are unshakable and they are grounded in truth. And that means that no, what, no matter what is going on in our life, Jesus is still worthy of all of our praise. So the question, do, does he have all of our worship? You know, worship is so much more than singing and raising our hands on a Sunday, although that's part of it and that is vital. Worship is the posture of our hearts. It is the posture of a heart that says that, Jesus, you are the, my greatest treasure. Not family, not things, not people, not work, you and you alone. Guys, when that is the posture of our hearts, there is a peace that floods our hearts, and it will carry over into every part of our life. So worship Jesus in response to how magnificent and how incredible he is. Worship him in song. Worship him no matter what's going on in your life, and worship him with your life. As we close, 
I just want to encourage those who feel far away from God right now. You know, we can feel far away from God for different reasons, and, and sometimes it's like a season of life, and, and I don't have time to go into all of it, but one of the reasons why we sometimes feel far away from God is because we have stopped pursuing and being close to him like we once had. Uh, Doug, you know, you've heard him talk about our dog, Chewy, and while I'm up here with the mic, I just want to clarify something. <laughs> Because not that long ago in a message, Doug was talking about how our dog, Chewy, loves me the most. And this is what he said. He said, the reason why he loves her the most is because she loves him more than anyone else in our family. And I was like, what? That sounds horrible. That makes it sound like, oh, actually, he said treats him better. That makes it sound like I treat my dog better than I treat my kids and my husband, but that's not what he meant. It just came out that way. What he actually meant was that I treat Chewy better than some of the other people in the family treat Chewy. Now, I think that Chewy loves me the most because I feed him, I take care of him, and I am doing it, you know, most of the, of the work for him. And because of that, he loves to be near me. And it's really hard to stop him from getting to be near me when he wants to be near me. Uh, sometimes I'm working on my computer. I have a picture. I was working on this message, and he climbs up on my lap, and he gets between me and the computer because he wants to be near me, and he doesn't care that I'm working. He is going to push that computer out of his way. Now, not only is he sitting with me, but Lord help the person who tries to come over and take him from me. They will probably lose a finger. He's so sweet and cute until someone tries to take him away from me. He doesn't just try to be near me. If he can't find me, he will look for me until he finds me. He will pursue me. The other day, I went into my bedroom, and I shut the door, and I'm getting changed, and suddenly, I see these two cute little paws <laughs> come underneath the doorway, and those paws stayed there until I opened the door, and he was with me again. He follows me to the bathroom. He follows me throughout the house. He won't stop pursuing me. Nothing will get in his way because he loves me, because I take care of him. Do whatever it takes to be near Jesus. Let nothing stand in your way in your pursuit of knowing him and being close to him. If that means changing your schedule, change your schedule. If that means getting rid of distractions, get rid of them. Do whatever it takes and get rid of any obstacle that stands between you and him. Draw near to Jesus. Draw near to him because there is no one and nothing as great as him. Draw near to Jesus because no matter what you walk through in life, he will carry you. He will sustain you. He will hold on to you. Draw near to Jesus because there was no length he was not willing to go. There was no suffering he was not willing to endure to make you his. Draw near to Jesus. Some of you might feel like you are too far from him right now. You're not. You're not. There is nobody too far, too hard, too sinful that the grace of God is not available to you. That the grace and undeserving love and mercy of God will not welcome you in and make you whole. Turn to him and you will find that his arms have been already held out to you. 
We have an incredible Savior. He is Lord over all. He rules and reigns even when sometimes we can't see how. And he laid down his life so that you and I can know him. What an amazing Savior we have. And that demands a response. Let's pray. God, again, I praise you for your word that brings encouragement, that, that breaks through the lies that we sometimes believe and shows us the real face of Jesus, the face of the one who loves us, the face of the one who pours out his mercy on us, the face of the one that never says, no, not this time, too many times, you're done. No, the one that always holds his arms out to us, ready to carry us, ready to help us, ready to hold us. And I pray for every single person in this room, Lord God, whether they feel close to you today or they feel far, that they would draw near to you. And as they do, they will feel you drawing near to them. I pray, Lord God, that you would become the greatest treasure in each of our hearts above all things. And that you would get the, the glory and the worship that is due your name. Thank you, Lord God, for the incredible Jesus that we have. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.